there is no social benefit to adding more units. When you add more units, all it does is, you know, unlike with any other good in the universe, you know, if you have more houses, that's more places for people to live. If you have more food, that's more, uh, you know, food for people to eat. Uh, if you have more TVs, people will have an actual use for it. When you have more money, it doesn't actually, you know, uh, lower the costs of, uh, you know, being able to live a materially better life. Um, in fact, it kind of makes it the opposite. Uh, it just, it redistributes wealth from the people who do have units to the people who are issuing new units. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week I have on Bitstein. Bitstein, welcome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Let's just go ahead and dive right into it. I think for a lot of be beginners that are you know new to Bitcoin this past bull cycle or this bear cycle, they may not understand you know the fundamentals of Bitcoin. I kind of want to ask you like, what is a Bitcoin full node and why is it important? Yeah, so that's a it's a very big question, uh, but also one of the most important questions uh, to tackle in Bitcoin. So a Bitcoin node is simply a computer that talks to the Bitcoin network. Um, a Bitcoin full node is a computer that processes the entire blockchain. So a full node downloads every single block, every single trans uh, transaction and goes through them and verifies all of the math, all the cryptography, you know, with the uh, signatures, um, and make sure that everything is actually following uh, the rules that they're supposed to. Um, a pruned node is one that, uh, you know, for storage reasons, uh, might discard some of the information after it's, you know, been verified and is no longer needed. Um, and an archival full node is, is one that will keep all of that information forever so you can go back and check it as many times as you'd like. Um, but the key thing there is that it they they go through every single piece of data and make sure that every bit is correct um, and that there's not a single one or zero out of place in the entire blockchain, um, You know, which is now, uh, I forget the exact numbers, but we'll call it like 500 gigabytes. Um, which is, you know, a lot of information to get exactly right and in sync with the entire network. Um, a, a, a full node is also sort of the instantiation of an individual will uh, with regards to Bitcoin. So, you know, a Bitcoin full node is something that is run by an individual somewhere. Other people might use the node. Not everyone runs their own nodes. Um, some people use, you know, fully custodial solutions. Uh, others want to um, have the Bitcoin mountain man uh, kind of uh, thing going on and go absolutely hardcore um, with, with um, you know, financial sovereignty, which I very much support and think that more people should uh, take on. Uh, but the point is, is uh, everyone who runs a node, everyone is, is free to do so. And you can, you determine the bounds of that and you choose uh, to be a part of a particular network following a particular set of rules. And the, the beauty of Bitcoin is that it's, you know, a, a set of rules that, you know, everyone agrees to, everyone has the incentive to continue agreeing to. Um, and meanwhile, as long as you're a 
running that full node, you know that the network is in consensus according to the rules that you actually set about to follow, such as, for instance, you know, uh, the, the 21 million supply cap. Yeah, I think that was very well said. I kind of want to dive into that, you know, critical rule that everyone kind of thinks of uh, the 21 million supply cap. Um, I guess going off of what you were just saying, you know, explaining, okay, as an individual, you can run a full node, you can set the rules within network consensus. Why is it so difficult then to change the 21 million supply cap? So the reason that it is so difficult is um, because you you can't just change other people's nodes. Everyone runs their own node, um, those, those who run a node. And if you're listening to this, uh, you should, or you should learn how. Um, so everyone, everyone is running their own node and no one can just arbitrarily dictate what code you need to run. So most people choose to run the um, you know, Bitcoin core, uh, the, the reference impl- implementation that sort of you know, descends from uh, Satoshi's original uh, implementation. Uh, but there's also, you know, there are other implementations. Uh, that's that's a whole nother can of worms. Uh, but the point is, is you can run whatever code you want. Um, no one, no one can dictate that. So what that means is, someone can propose a a different set of rules, and they can even run a different set of rules on their computer. They can run a Bitcoin node um, that says. Well, uh, actually, we will allow a different amount of Bitcoin rewards on blocks going forward, but they can't get everyone else to do that uh, just arbitrarily. They have to convince others to do that. Um, and that means that they have, to, they have to win over an entire economy uh, for, for that to occur. Um, and that's simply that that's not feasible uh, simply because the incentive to you know want your monetary assets diluted is just not there Um, obviously uh, people who are engaged in uh, mining and are friends with miners would would very much enjoy the ability to do that because they would be able to perhaps earn more of the whole bitcoin um, economy uh, than they otherwise would when there's there's a cap um, but that doesn't mean that everyone else in the economy, which uh, is most people, uh, would have an interest in doing that. So uh, they're, they're, they simply have no incentive to be adopting a different set of rules. Um, other reasons are if, if you start going down that path, and this is part of why like the, the incentives line up, is not only do I just don't want my money diluted, but if you go down that path of doing that, which would necessarily require a, um, a, a hard fork, um, actually I say necessarily there might be some kind of very uh, tricky soft fork that could be implemented. But the point is, is there would have to be, there would have to be a, a major change to Bitcoin and every time you introduce a major change, um, and especially a hard fork, you're creating a backwards incompatibility. And when you do that, you also, you know, you've you've sort of opened Pandora's box, and you said maybe Bitcoin isn't so immutable after all. And uh, one of the main pulls of Bitcoin is the fact that you can expect it. 
to be how it is now and in the future and deep into the future. You want, you know, a, a savings device um, and, and a money that you can rely on, not just today, but also 100 years from now. And so if the more potential for backwards incompatibility that you introduce to the system, um, that, that can have consequences that uh, people, people would not be interested in. Yeah, I like what you brought up about miners and how, you know, miners theoretically could propose or mine a block that has, you know, significant uh, more more uh, reward than nodes accept. But, you know, I work for Blockware Solutions. This is the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. We're obviously not mining blocks that have a greater block subsidy than nodes expect because it just wouldn't get accepted from all of these nodes and we wouldn't get any Bitcoin. So, you know, miners are incentivized to play by the rules that the nodes set themselves. I think that was a great point. Um, I'm curious to, to, to hear your perspective on this. You know, what, knowing that background about full nodes and, and what they are, I guess what makes Bitcoin like the least uncertain asset and what makes it different from other cryptos or Ethereum or something like that? So uh, just to, to round off your, your last point, yeah, it, it doesn't matter how much a miner puts into creating a block, no matter how much proof of work, if it's invalid, then other nodes simply don't care and you get you get banned from the network effectively. So um, it's, it's actually hard to even propagate invalid data in the Bitcoin um, network because of that. Uh, uh, Stop and decrypt is called that, you know, an impen impenetrable fortress of validation. And I think that's uh, a, a beautiful way to summarize it. As far as what differentiates uh, Bitcoin from all other assets and makes it this uniquely um, certain asset, so the, the least uncertain, is because of the fact that um, everything about it is um, very, it, it, it's, it's, it's very set in stone, um, not completely. We've seen a lot of different upgrades uh, to the, you know, core consensus over the years. And, you know, we may, we may see more. Um, but some of the most uh, fundamental core features of that um, have, as I said, remained backwards compatible. Uh, we have a monetary policy that is simply stuck. Um, there's, there's not going to be a change to that. Um, and the, the system has, despite all of the crazy things that have happened in the past decade uh, and, and more, um, has remained extremely resilient, um, you know, against everything from, you know, uh, sort of social attacks via just, you know, all of the, all of the hate from academia and the media uh, to sort of nation state attacks of, blo uh, of uh, banning mining. Uh, where we've seen large uh, mining facilities just, you know, pack up and, and send their miners elsewhere in the world to kind of continue uh, mining. Despite all that, uh, Bitcoin just, it, it has blocks that keep on coming. Um, we've added new signature types, so you can use Schnorr today, but ECDSA still works in anyone who has a key from many years ago. Um you know, uh, it's it just it functions correctly. So the important thing to understand with uncertainty and kind of money in general is that the whole purpose of money is that it is a most liquid good that can kind of overcome uh, uncertainty. 
and uncertainty comes in many different forms. There's, it's, there's, uh, you know, Carl Menger uh, wrote about the idea that there is uh, sort of space, um, you know, uh, problems of space that money has to deal with, and also problems of time. Um, and I think you could also, uh, you know, uh, make a case for um, kind of making scale um, another kind of explicit dimension. Um, and among those, there's many different things. Uh, and a lot of these are described by, you know, the common properties that have been listed out as good for money since antiquity. You have things like divisibility, you have transportability, um, et cetera, et cetera. The, uh, all of those things are sort of describing a different kind of uncertainty that uh, money has to overcome. So it can be this useful thing that people can deal with that. So for instance, um, if you want to go trade with apples, um, you have a time period in which that is possible until the, the apples rot. And so we would say that money is not durable. I mean, uh, apples are not durable enough to be um, a good money. And, uh, you know, that is an uncertainty. It's like, I don't know when I'm going to need to trade. So I don't want to hold on to a good that is not going to be good in, you know, a few weeks or so because I might need this in a few months or a few years. Um, and so you want something that's more durable than, say, apples. Um, then you can have things. So that's, that's like a, uh, a, a time consideration. Um, you have space considerations of like, okay, well, if I have, uh, you know, gold, uh, which is traditionally seen as, as you know, the, the best sound money until Bitcoin came along, but there is this obvious problem with, with gold where if you don't know, hey, maybe I'm going to be trading in Hong Kong uh, next week, how do I get uh, a lot of gold to Hong Kong? That can be a very costly, um, uh, very costly uh, thing to try to deal with. And so you have that uncertainty you're trying to deal with of, well, what about if I want to trade in all these different places? Um, and and then um, with scale, um, if you have, for instance, you know, a house, um, that can be very hard to trade uh, for small things like a ribeye or, or a pencil or something because you can't you can't break it up. Um, you either have you either sell the whole house or you don't. Um, so houses are just you know they're not they're not exactly the most uh, liquid good on that front. So the point is is on each of these dimensions you deal with a lot of different possibilities of trades that might not be possible because the good cannot withstand that dimension it's not it's not good enough at holding up through time or it's not good enough at holding up through different spatial needs um, and likewise different scaling needs and money is what the market kind of uh, moves towards a a good, that is best able to handle these different uh, needs that people have such that they can be certain that when they, uh, you know, despite at the moment not knowing what they, you know, need, in which they, case they could just, you know, go buy the thing now and, and have it. But if they, don't, if they don't know what the future is going to hold, they want to have a good that they can get rid of the easiest 
uh, for what they might actually need in the future. And so money is effectively a, a hedge against future uncertainty. Bitcoin is just absolutely incredible and uh, basically superior to every other asset on all of these dimensions, you know, taken as a whole. Um, and, and that's why it's the best money uh, that we have ever had in history. Um, and you can go through an endless, you know, litany of, uh, you know, the, the ways in which Bitcoin is better. But basically the contention is that when it comes to uh, space, you can send Bitcoin anywhere basically instantly. Uh, and which also time, you can send it basically anywhere instantly. Um, and at scale, you can send everything from sub-Satoshis on the Lightning Network um, to also, uh, you know, billions of dollars in a single transaction. And in many ways, uh, it won't even affect the cost of sending that transaction um, any more than any other, uh, you know, payment would. Um, of course, depending on how many how many inputs you have and, and all of that that more uh, kind of nerdy operational stuff. But the point is, is generally speaking, it's, it's able to absorb all that and handle all of those kinds of uh, things extremely efficiency and at the lowest cost of uh, anything, anything we've seen. Yeah, I think that was very well said. I think a lot of, I guess, no coiners or people that don't fully understand Bitcoin yet. They, they tend to look at the, like the other, I guess, way that people have thought of as money as like a medium of exchange, a unit of account and a store of value. And then they see like, oh, no one's using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. It's terrible money or no, or Bitcoin's too volatile. It's a terrible unit of account. But then I feel like you take a much better approach where you're looking at more of like, no, like what are the fundamental properties of Bitcoin that make it possible to be used for those use cases does that make sense to you or, or how do you think about how people have thought of you know unit of account medium of exchange and kind of use that as a way to like say bitcoin isn't good money yeah i i, I think that that's a it's a very interesting and uh kind of you know i want to say it's academic and yet it it trips people up so much that uh it's very much worth trying to take new approaches to um, but the funny thing is my maybe like new approach is just taking the oldest approach, which is in the tradition of people like Karl Menger and Ludwig von Mises. And that is to say that money really is just nothing but a medium of exchange. That That is what it is. When we talk about these functions of money, ultimately, they're all being derived from its function as a medium of exchange. Um, but people get tripped up on, say, what that might mean. So medium of exchange is not the same as method of payment. Uh, medium, of, medium of exchange is the actual good that's being used in indirect exchange. Method of payment can just be any kind of thing that's, uh, you know, referencing uh, the, the exchange of title uh, to that good. And so, you know, we, we trade you know, dollars all the time, but a lot of times we're just, you know, swiping a card. So it's like, are, are we using the dollar as a, as a medium of, of exchange there? Because I'm not actually handing them dollars. I'm, I'm swiping my card and that, you know, changes a bunch of databases somewhere with all these like credit accounts and whatnot. And it's like, no, we are using the dollar as a medium of exchange, but our method of payment happens to be uh, this other thing. So that's that's one key thing. And then as far as, you know, unit of account or store of value, 
those are ways of that that people are kind of thinking about uh, their usage of a medium of exchange. As you adopt a medium of exchange, you will start to um, think about your profit and losses on the market in terms of that medium of, of exchange, and that's what a unit of account is. A unit of account is simply, you know, when when you add things up, you take a bunch of goods to market and you see how you did. Do you mark it up as I gained or lost bitcoins, or I gained and lost dollars? And that can be, I think, a lot more subjective than 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 people think. Um, I think that Bitcoiners do this already by virtue of the fact that for much of their lives, they might be thinking in terms of dollars because that's what they have to go uh, to the store to actually pay and they, they work a job and they get paid in dollars. So there's a, a level of economic calculation that's being done in dollars. At the same time, increasingly, uh, we see this with Bitcoiners and it's part of their fanaticism is it's a, it, it, it sort of comes as a um, derivative of the fact that as they get into Bitcoin, they think more in terms of the future opportunity cost of Bitcoin, which is effectively making them think of profit and loss in a much more uh, radical way, um, and I think a sounder way. So there is a sense of unit of account when you look at something and it's like, I could have, I could go buy this chair but I'm not going to buy this chair because that's ultimately costing me this many sats. And that sats, those, those sats, you know, kind of match up to this future expected, um, you know, purchasing power. So there is kind of a unit of account thing there, even if that doesn't necessarily match up with every single uh, act that they, they have every day. But it like starts to absorb the way of thinking um anyway and so many of us uh even though we use the dollars it's like we're effectively thinking in bitcoins because when we're thinking about our long-term potential we're not thinking oh what is the dollar amount except as this proxy of purchasing power which is is kind of why the the price is so interesting um it's it's in bitcoin terms and so it's very much a unit of account and store of value you know, is is not it's not like a magical feature of a money or anything or or a good. It's a it's it's describing basically future expectations and thus like you know where where you'd want to uh, put money uh, or or you know investments or whatever because of your future expectations of the the purchasing power of uh, a, a given good so it's almost like you're you're just looking at the medium of exchange over a period of time and at some point you know we don't really think of a store value in terms of uh holding cash in our wallet that we might go use to pay for a haircut later on uh, but then when we start thinking a year, five years, 10 years down the road, if not even longer, which I hope people are thinking even longer than, than that. But um, as you're thinking about that, you do have to take into consideration all of those uncertainties, especially on you know the, the time side, um, what, what will be able to hold up the best. And that's kind of where the, the term store of value comes from. But it's not, there's not like a, a magical essence of a good that makes it a store of value. It is a description of how well a medium of exchange can withstand the uncertainties of time and 
you know, whatever space and scale stuff kind of play into that as well. Foundation is one of my favorite Bitcoin companies. Their product Passport is one of the best Bitcoin hardware wallets on the market. It is air-gapped and highly secure. I strongly encourage you to go to foundationdevices.com and use the code BLOCKWARE and get $10 off your passport. It's a great way to easily and securely store the private keys to your Bitcoin. Yeah, awesome. Uh, completely agree. I want to get your thoughts on this. What do you think an economic system would look like under Bitcoin standard? We see Keynesians argue that you know society needs an ever-increasing money supply to, to continue growing the economy. Will they be proven right or will they be proven wrong with Bitcoin? <laughs> well, I think they'll be proven poor, but um, yeah, so... They're, they're wrong. Um, so the, the idea that the, the society needs an ever-increasing money su- supply um, is, is, is there's an idea there that suggests that having an increased unit, increased units of money somehow creates more social benefit. Um, but as long as you have enough of a good for it to be able to act as money, um, which, you know, I think that 21 quadrillion units of Bitcoin is more than adequate to to have enough um, accounting to be able to handle a Bitcoin economy, especially um, if if certain uses of Bitcoin end up, you know, more, you know, custodial in certain ways. Um, And to be clear, I'm not advocating that people go use custodial things, but like uh, things like exchanges or whatever, they they're able to do a lot of. you know, uh, accounting on their trading orders without having to increase the amount of Bitcoin in the system uh, because they have, you know, uh, just databases that are able to track who has what. And so for as long as people are using it, they're able to, um, you know, keep keep track of this, uh, hopefully well, um, obvious risks uh, exist. But the point is, is like, you know, 21 quadrillion units is, is more than enough for an economy to run on. And uh, because of that, there is no social benefit to adding more units. When you add more units, all it does is, you know, unlike with any other good in the universe, you know, if you have more houses, that's more places for people to live. If you have more food, that's more, uh, you know, food for people to eat. Uh, If you have more TVs, people will have an actual use for it. When you have more money, it doesn't actually, you know, uh, lower the costs of, uh, you know, being able to live a materially better life. Um, in fact, it kind of makes it the opposite. Uh, it just it redistributes wealth from the people who do have units to the people who are issuing new units. Um, and so you're not actually creating more wealth by adding more units. And in fact, you're kind of uh, decreasing welfare in the sense that you have now the ramifications of that redistribution, which means that the people who are using the prior units can no longer use them for what they intended to. Um, and so their, their economic calculation is now, is now um, affected. So uh, there's, there's that side of it. And then I would say, uh, I feel like I lost my train of thought here. Um, but, you know, we, we can start with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about the idea that somehow economists have like 
thought that creating more pieces of paper has made society wealthier over time. I remember I, I talked to Lynn Alden about this before and, and I asked her perspective on like, do you think an ever increasing money supply has like accelerated economic growth over the last you know century? Because, you know, we have had a lot of economic growth over the last century, even throughout, you know, two world wars. But she said, actually, she thinks that the main reason for the amount of, you know, economic growth that we've had was really just due to hydrocarbons and oil. And and the Mm -hmm. energy return on investment was just so much greater that we unlocked so much extra potential in the last century. I don't know if you have a take on, on that or any other thoughts. No, I, I mean, I, th- I think that's a very astute point that there is there is there were other technological breakthroughs um, that allowed a magnificent increase in productive capacity uh, relative to, you know, the wages that we people were making, which, uh, you know, meant that people every time they they got some money, it could go into the market and buy more. Um, and I would also kind of add to that, that the reason that you can be even you know printing that money and kind of getting away with it was because there was so much growth that you could be a parasite off of um and so there's there's kind of a, a backwards causality and this actually brings me to what i was i was thinking about prior which i think is a a fundamental sort of keynesian error which is to believe that economic growth comes from these sort of you know stimulation because effectively the idea is that we print more units of money and now that money um, you know, we can direct it at whatever they want, which uh, happens to mostly be the military industrial complex, it seems like. Um, but they get to point it at that. And that spurs innovation, as they tell us, and like all these things are built. And we should all be so thankful um, that they know better than we do where our money ought to go. Um, but as I said before, that money is just being redistributed. Um, so it's not necessarily creating any any real social benefit when you when you kind of think of the the costs of having taken that away from other people especially consider when we go back and think about where actual economic growth comes from in the first place and it all starts not with uh investing but instead savings because you cannot invest things until you've already made savings you can't you can't invest things that that aren't actually there ultimately um, at the end of the day, there's still there are physical things that have to be moved in order to you know actually uh, create wealth. So you need to accumulate those so that you can put them to work in some uh, productive venture. And that seems to be a sort of backwards thing that they tend to not understand. Um, and so, yeah, you 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 need to be able to save money so that you can put it to work. Basically, what happens when they're printing money that way, you're saving the money and then they're putting it to, to work uh, to their use and you don't get to put it to work uh, towards your use. And uh, it, it's 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 misaligned with uh, the actual like production of the economy uh, at the expense of everyone for the benefit of a very uh, select, uh, powerful few. Yeah, and it's funny to think that people would think that, you know, increasing the money supply leads to massive economic growth when, like, you know, for hundreds and thousands of years, it's not like humans have had, like, perfectly deflationary or or fixed supply money systems. Like, we've had inflationary money systems for, you know, thousands of years at this point. It's not like that we created the computer back in the year 200. (laughs) 
Right, so. right. And and that's because like in order to actually produce these technological things, you would have had to have prior savings that went into prior innovations that found these ways of, of doing things. And, you know, I, I, I talk a little bit about that at the beginning of my, my article toward new node world order. And um, I, I think it's, I think it's an incredibly important thing to kind of grasp, um, you know, how an economy actually gets richer. Um, and it's simply, it's, it's not because you created more paper pieces. Uh, there's a great uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe, uh, video that I, I think I helped uh, get to spread around, but he just points out you have to just keep repeating this question to them is how does printing more pieces of paper make us actually more materially wealthy? And the answer is it doesn't. It's, it's through actual production um, that we're able to become wealthier. Yeah, it's a great, great point and a great video. I encourage everyone to go check that out. Um, what is your take on Balaji's like hyperinflation call? That's very rapid. Um, and like how he's kind of like encouraging everyone to exit the system and, and buy Bitcoin. What do you think about that? Um, so I, I am not a finance person. Um, and I, I probably shouldn't comment on the, the complexities of the, the current situations. Um, but I do think that, uh, people like Safedine have made persuasive arguments as to why, um, hyperinflation is not going to be happening in the United States um, at that rapid of, of a pace. Um, so uh, people people should check that out uh, if they want, you know, some some you know uh, better laid out uh, case of of why that is not going to happen or why why some people don't think it's going to happen. Um, but that being said, on the other side of that, of people getting out of the system and moving to Bitcoin, I think that people really should. I think that these these events uh, are very good at getting people to realize that the banks don't operate like they thought. Um, but this is not a new thing. Um, this, was, this did not begin with uh, Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank or any of these banks. Um, this is how the system has been for a very long time. It's structurally like that. And so... Uh, these events do pe get some people to recognize that that's not acceptable. And since 2009, we have a serious alternative and people who have moved to this alternative don't have to be uh, afraid as much as uh, the people who kept their money there. So as far as, the, you know, uh, bank runs and everything, you know, Everyone should constantly be on a 24-7 bank run, and they should have been since 2009, to try to get as much of their money free from the fiat system and moved into uh, Bitcoin. Absolutely. I think this is a section in your Node World Order uh, piece that you wrote. Is Bit Bitcoin optional? So uh, in the long run, I effectively say no. Um, and the reason that I say that is because Bitcoin is so superior on so many dimensions that people are going to come across uncertainties that no other asset can fix. Um, and Bitcoin will, will always be there chugging away, uh, following its rules, having its 21 million with, an, you know, you can run your own node and verify the whole thing. And because of that, it is this sort of economic black hole Um that people are going to find themselves in. And as they find themselves in it, they they only want to uh, 
make it even more so and they have more more incentives to um want that to be the dominant system so at the margins these things just you know push push in that direction and over time i would expect a situation where you know you wake up and people just don't demand anything but bitcoin um generally speaking um i don't know if you had a follow-up question to that yeah i guess kind of going off of that i think in the piece you talk about this idea of a bitcoin world order of, of how i guess you know if bitcoin is not optional everyone's using bitcoin what is your vision of a bitcoin world order and what does that mean to you yeah i mean that's it was it was sort of a you know just kind of play on on all of the speak of world orders which you know is one of those things where conspiracy theorists always go on about the the new world order and then the people in power uh don't exactly help because they also just like explicitly use these terms um so it's this it's this thing and and in a sense there is there is such a thing as a world order uh in the sense it's like you know what what are the what are the current you know kind of webs of social interaction at various levels that kind of make up the, the ways in which our society does things and currently it's all based on a you know disastrous fiat system um where they continually print away people's savings um and and engage in all sorts of you know uh, monetary imperialism and uh you know this this has uh, caused a lot of uh you know warfare and uh you know egregious uh amounts of uh, welfare programs that don't even necessarily increase people's welfare, um, but it does increase the, you know, the the coffers of those who are, you know, running those systems, and uh, yeah, it, it's all there's there is a big money spigot, and everyone is kind of you know ordered around trying to get their hands on what is coming out of the money spigot, and I think that Bitcoin closes that spigot, and so it incentivizes people to act differently um, when you don't have that money available um, it's harder to finance wars um, you know i always like to quote dr ron paul when he says you know it's no coincidence that the you know century of central banking was the century of total war because when you have this giant spigot you can afford to take on military operations that you otherwise would not have taken on um, and uh, so so I think that it a a Bitcoin order is one that would promote more uh, you know property rights, uh, more peace relative than to before, um, more production um, because you have to actually go out into the marketplace and earn some money uh, by by doing productive, valuable things rather than just finding some grift that uh ties you into you know the the giant uh cantillon effects that that are available to you and so i think it it basically yeah it orders people i believe more towards uh peace and prosperity and production rather than you know redistribution and uh all of all of the propaganda that's used to continue to you know propagate that yeah i think that was very well said um, I think this was a great recording. I, I know I listened to a lot of noted podcasts back in the day with you and 
Pierre Richard and the, the Nakamoto Institute was one of like the first resources that I personally used to like discover and, and learn more about Bitcoin and I guess question my uh, the things that I was skeptical of about Bitcoin at first and then once I read some of your pieces uh, it helped a lot but I guess what are you up Great, to now? grateful I well I'm grateful to be of service yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, well, I'm curious, like, what are you up to now? I know some people may have listened to you years ago on the podcast, read a lot of your work. What are you up to now? Yeah, so uh, these days, um, a lot of uh, software engineering, primarily in the, the Bitcoin space, but also um, kind of trying to ramp up Bitcoin education um, as well. So um, I started a Substack, um, which has <laughs> uh, went quickly on a hiatus for a bit for some, you know, personal reasons. But that that's going to be um, ramping back up. And on that Substack, my goal is to um, help better understand Bitcoin through Austrian economics, and maybe even perhaps the other way around, better understand Austrian economics uh, through Bitcoin. Um, so that people can have just a, a fundamentally better understanding of Bitcoin in general. Um, and the reason for that is because the only way that you can kind of ultimately fight against bad ideas is through better ideas. Um, when, you're, when you hear things on the news, you see things going around Twitter, um, you need a strong mental tool set to be able to actually analyze the claims that are coming in. And I happen to think that the, the Austrian tradition, uh, the Austrian School of Economics, offers uh, the best toolkit for addressing matters of um, basically uh, the social sciences, um, especially in economics. And so because of that, the better that we can understand why is it that people actually use money, um, what makes a good money based on the fact, you know, what are people using it for in the first place? Um, the more that we can understand, um, you know, the, the incentives that are actually at play uh, with regards to people acting, if we're able to think about the economy not as um, a, a big thing where uh, there's a bunch of levers you pull and it controls the whole economy, but instead understand uh, the ways in which these social structures can be built um, bottom up. Um, and and through through individual action um, and and such, um, the the more that you can understand all of these economic principles, or like we discussed, like how how do you actually get richer? How does production actually work? How do capital markets form? All these different questions. The more that you have that available, the more that you can counter bad ideas that come your way that uh, are, are usually just trying to, you know, my, my cynical take is they're usually just trying to find a way to uh, steal money from you by making you think that it's okay to be a part of this system where there's a giant money spigot and they get to print money and dilute your wealth um, for, to their own ends. Um, the, the best way that we can ultimately counter that is by better understanding um, so that people can protect themselves but not only protect themselves because that's kind of a, that's a negative viewpoint you know that's that's saying you know you just you just you don't want to be attacked or whatever but it's also how do we go forward make an even better uh you know world um and so yeah so because of that i think it's it's very important to dive into these topics and uh my my goal through writing is is trying to explore more of these economic fundamentals how they tied to Bitcoin um, and and otherwise, uh, so that we can 
better understand how we can make the wonderful, prosperous world that we're ultimately seeking um, by getting into Bitcoin in the first place. Absolutely. It's called the Bitstein Brief, right? Do I have that correct? <laughs> yes. Yeah. At bitstein.substack.com. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm subscribed. I think I subscribed like the first day you put it out. Uh, it's it's definitely one of the best newsletters. Yeah, everyone needs to check it out. I'm glad that you're back from your hiatus and you're going to be publishing more because I'd love to read some of your stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, there's a lot of ideas, and of course, you know, if people people want to reach out um, with questions they have and and topics that they think need to be addressed. Um, you know, please, please do so. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm here to be of service. I want to help te uh, teach people. So, um, you know, knowing, knowing also what people are desiring to learn, uh, is very important. Amazing. Yeah. Everyone go check that out. Uh, Bitstein, thanks so much for coming on. This was a epic conversation. Thank you so much for having me and hope to do it again. Absolutely.